The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. We're in Luke chapter 7. Uh, We're going to go through verses 18 through 35. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how gracious you are, how patient you are with us. And we ask, God, that you would show us through your Holy Spirit what we are to learn from the passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to welcome back John the Baptist. He's been absent with us for a while uh, since chapter 3. And so here we are with him, chapter 7. And uh, back in chapter 3, you remember that he confronted Herod because Herod was having this affair with his uh, sister-in-law and uh, not, not so very well accepted. And, and John is confronting him about this evil and other evils that he's done. And so for that, Herod has ordered him to go to jail. So he throws him in jail. John is in jail. But... Interesting thing is John is still able to communicate with his family, with his friends. He still has contact with the outside world. He's able to keep current on on everything that's happening. He's listening to what's happening outside there. He's listening to uh, his 
cousin Jesus and what, what he's doing there. And, and so this latest news that John has received is, is about the servant of a centurion getting healed, a Gentile. And he also hears this story about how Jesus stops this funeral procession and how he heals this boy. He, he raises him from the dead and he gives him back to his mother. So he's hearing all these stories. And then here we are in verses 18 and 19. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now this is a really odd question. I don't know if you kind of sense the oddness to this. Because you have to consider who's asking this question. It's not... This is his cousin. This is the guy that jumped in the womb when they were like just telepathically communicating from belly to belly, right, Elizabeth and Mary. And this is the guy that grew up with him. This is the guy that knows everything about him. This is a a great prophet. The guy who in verse 28, Jesus said this of John, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And the guy who has this really important role as being the forerunner, the messenger uh, of Jesus, right? John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John. John knew this of Jesus. John was very familiar with Jesus. And so John the Baptist is not the guy we'd expect this question from. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's a very odd question to come from him. But here we find this question, and he's asking this from his jail cell. Now, why did John ask this? What made him ask this? Well, like, like a lot of us, when, when, when things don't go, go according to our own plans, and, and we, we, we start to think about stuff, like, is this really happening? I thought this was the Lord's will. I thought he was going to do this. And so you, you, you get these senses of, I know I'm right, so are you in that place? And so you recall what John was preaching, right? You go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he's preaching this. You brood of vipers. My, my eldest daughter, Isabella, is really fascinated with vipers right now. I don't know why she is, but maybe she's being prophetic of her dad. But anyway, who warned, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So keep that in mind, wrath. Chapter 3, verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wrath. Fire. Okay? This is what John is preaching about. And then you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wrath, fire, fire. Right? John, John is preaching about judgment. He's preaching about wrath. He's preaching about fire. He thought he was clearing the way for this stuff to happen. Right? And so here's Jesus. When, Jesus. when my cousin comes, I'm just kind of like clearing the floor. But when he comes, he's going to torch the place. He's going to burn. He's going to clear all this stuff. He's going to make things right. He's going to stomp out the evil. He's going to judge all these people who are unrepentant. He's going, to, he's going to bring justice here. But then he's hearing this different message from Jesus in prison. 
Right? The things that Jesus was doing and saying, this is not what John was expecting. John was expecting fire, wrath, judgment. He's, he's healing a servant of a Gentile. What? Burn him. Right? Or, or, or he's raising the dead son of a, a widow in Nain. What is he doing in Nain? How is he going to topple the Roman government and become the Messiah and the Savior in Nain? What is he doing there? He should be in Jerusalem. What is he doing? Where's the wrath? Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? I thought that that's what he was going to do. So John was, was, a, 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 was curious. He was curious to know if, if Jesus was going to do this or was this someone else that was going to do this? Was Jesus going to bring forth this wrath, this judgment? Or, or is it somebody else? Because I'm not seeing it. And so John was trying to make sense of all this stuff that was going to happen. Or, or that he thought was going to happen. Now John isn't wrong. John is just ahead. This stuff is going to happen. That judgment, that wrath, that, that fire. That stuff is going to happen. It's just not yet. So it's not that he was a wrong prophet or he prophesied the wrong things. There's just a not yet element to it. And then we get to verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This question is asked a second time here or it's shown to be asked a second time here. They really want us to get the idea that this question is, is really kind of bubbling here, right? Verses 21-22 In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus in that hour he, he gets this question he, he starts doing these miracles he starts healing people. He starts showing them all this stuff. And, and as these guys are asking this question of John, for John, Jesus is healing all these people. And so he does all this stuff to show them. Now, see how gracious Jesus is. He's like, oh, aren't you going to do this? This is a question we have for you. And instead of just kind of like telling them, get a clue or rebuking them or something, he just was like, follow me and he starts doing his work and he starts healing people and he starts doing all this stuff right in front of their eyes and he's just so gracious with us now his disciples made some pretty crazy statements too right and you remember in Caesarea Philippi Peter tells them I basically don't die for us and then Jesus rebukes him and says get behind me Satan and and they say some pretty dumb stuff or like oh we're perishing in the storm uh, even though you're God and you're with us in the boat and they say all this stuff right now John the Baptist asked some pretty nutty questions like this too but this is so much like us isn't it where we, we make these kinds of statements about God or for God and we ask these kind of lame questions of God maybe we're not being patient enough and maybe we're not waiting and it's not that yet moment, that not yet moment. But it's, it's like our eschatology, right? What, what is eschatology? Essentially, eschatology is the study of end times. And so the, the end times, which John's eschatology, it wasn't matching up with what Jesus was doing. He was thinking that, hey, I'm here, the 
threshing floor and all this stuff and axe to the tree and all this stuff, but it's not happening. And so we get confused with what's happening in the world and we wonder, where is God and what's He doing and how come it's not happening? And it's not that it's not going to happen because what John was prophesying is true. It's just not yet. Not yet. And thank God for that. Can you imagine if it did happen earlier, you and I probably wouldn't be here? So thank God for that. And instead of that rebuke that Jesus could have given John's disciples for asking that question, he graciously says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Right? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, take notice of the order of what is to be told to John and of what they saw and what they heard. Right? The, the, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And that last piece, the poor have good news preached to them, that's crucial. It's crucial because without this last piece, everything else from an eternal perspective, all those things, those great things, those healing things, they don't matter, matter in the eternal perspective. Sure, in the short term it's great. But if you don't have that last piece, the other stuff doesn't matter. Now what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 4, verse 43? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And this is right after Jesus had done some pretty awesome stuff. You know, some awesome stuff was going on in his ministry. He was casting out demons. He was healing people. But he, he took off after all that success, even though everyone else right there wanted him to stay. And why did he do that? Because his purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, not just to that town, but to the other ones as well. So that's his purpose. And so we... we must never leave out preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor. No matter how much good stuff we do, we cannot leave out preaching the good news to the poor. And I don't mean materially poor, because if it really meant materially poor, then why is the good news reached to the centurion, who is very rich? He had servants, right? So this is not about the materially poor. These are the poor in spirit, the people that don't have God. So the purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, not just to that town, everywhere else, and it's to preach to the poor. So Jesus here is talking about spiritual poverty, not material poverty. Okay? So if we look back to the stories of the centurion servant and the widow with this uh, son who was risen from the dead, you'll notice that they had needs only God could meet. And this is, this is a really awesome place to be. Right? To be in a place where only God can answer your prayer. Where only God can come through for you. And what a great learning opportunity that we have sometimes when we're in that place. And we need to recognize, you know, we need God. Only God can answer this for us. And it's just a great opportunity to strengthen our faith. Now why would we need God if we could do everything ourselves and fulfill our own needs? You wouldn't. You would, you would just go about doing your own stuff. You know, you could do it out of your own flesh. You could get somebody else to do it for you. But why, why would we need faith if everything is determined by our circumstances? God doesn't allow that. We can't do everything on our own. But there are things beyond our circumstances that are answered in miraculous ways. 
And I, I love this next gracious saying from Jesus in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now how many of us have been embarrassed by Jesus as Christians? And I think we all have because Christians have done some pretty dumb things. And so, you know, we are embarrassed by a lot of those things. I am. But usually I'm embarrassed because of other Christians. But how many times are we embarrassed because of Jesus? Like, you know, Jesus, why, why is all this miraculous stuff, this supernatural stuff recorded in the Bible, like stopping storms and casting out demons and, and all that stuff? You know, it, it's cool, but it's like, how can someone accept it today? We have these stories and we tell these stories of people and they just think we're crazy. You know, that's it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, why can't we just say like we're, we're really socially driven to, to, to improve social justice issues and we, we do things about that, you know, and, and we can do that. And, and, and then we get embarrassed because things are greater than that, that Jesus can actually do not just that, but more than that. But then we kind of get embarrassed that it's, it's supernatural. It's not proven. It's not scientific. Like, you created the world. Wow. Can't we just say, like, you created evolution and then evolution created the world? That would be much more acceptable. Like, you know, we could, we could do that. But it says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, which is a gracious rebuke that he was given to John. And Jesus doesn't warn John and his disciples. And he was like, what did you just say? You think it's not me? Be careful. You go back to John and tell him, be careful. And he doesn't, he doesn't threaten. He doesn't do any of that stuff. In other words, he says, John, keep going. Don't, don't fall away. Right? Just, just keep going. And blessed are you who's not offended by me. I know that I'm probably not doing things the way that you're expecting me to do them. Don't get embarrassed. Keep, keep going. Now, how many of us feel like John did when, when the stuff happening around us gets the better of us and we're in, a, we're in a jail cell, right? And we question God about what's going on. You know, I, I've done everything right. Is Jesus going to do anything? You look at the evil all around us. Is God going to do anything? And you don't even have to look at the world. You just look at Oakland and you can get disheartened enough. Isn't that true? Oakland, the fifth most dangerous city in the United States. Did you know how long it took for Oakland to have its first murder on New Year's Day? 14 minutes. 12.14 a.m. Oakland's first murder. The month isn't over and we have 10 10 in January. And we're supposed to be more enlightened. You know, the Bay Area is supposed to be the leader politically, socially, technologically. What's going on here? Are we really that great? Right? And so, so I wouldn't find it surprising if Christians, even in our church, are asking, are you going to come? This is some awful stuff. Right here on International, there are kids being sexually trafficked, God. There's like all these refugees in here. They cut all the adult ed. They have no way to get food stamps after three months, God. What, what's going on? We have all these social injustice issues going on here. 
when in the when are you going to do something? And so Jesus' own disciples, John's own disciples, they weren't ex- exempt from this confusion, just like we're not exempt from this confusion. But we have to have faith. We have to exercise faith. And you take a look at Luke chapter 9. We won't go into a lot of detail because we'll get there in the next few weeks. But I'd like to share something with you really quickly. Starting in Luke 9 verses 1 through 5. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, nor, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. When I do this, I make sure my feet are really dirty before I do this. No, I'm kidding. So Jesus was sharing with them that, you know, you're going to get rejected. But when you experience rejection, it's not because um, of something that you present. So don't take it personally. right? Not, not everyone's going to like what you have to say about me, about the kingdom. So if you're rejected, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Let them know that, you know, this is no biggie. Not going to do a big thing. Just clean my feet. Now you go down to verses 51 and 54 of the same chapter. I want to show you something there in, in light of this first part. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Did you catch this? Compare those first verses in the same chapter, 1 through 5, to this. How did James and John, disciples of Jesus, who heard that teaching about shaking dust off your feet, go from shaking off their like Birkenstocks or something, from calling fire from heaven? How do they move like that? You're, fire? What? Shake dust off your feet. What do you want a fire from heaven for? Right? So Jesus told them how to handle rejection. Just shake your flip-flops and, and leave. But these guys are like... Jesus, let's torch him. Call in the napalm. Like he's like, but but this is how people often react, right? And it's usually from the more conservative people. It just happens to be that way. I'm not picking on you. And I've heard something like this from the more conservative Christians, right? Like God, the Bay Area, what an abomination! Torch it, blow it all up, get rid of them. Has anyone heard this? I heard this a lot, especially when I go speak at the Central Valley or something like that. Oh, the mayor, God's going to judge you and cast fire. I guess I'll roast marshmallows, I guess. I don't know, I'm there. Jesus didn't preach that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's what He said. Jesus isn't telling us to participate in sin. But he's not telling us to wish fire upon sinners. He tells us to love them, to have mercy on them. 
Right? That person who looks different than us, who smells different than us, who, who sounds different than us, treat them as you would like to be treated yourself. Right? The golden rule. So, so love them. Love them. And if, if they reject you when, you when you share God's love for them, when you share Jesus' love for them, you're not instructed to curse them. Pray. Bless. Right? To, 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 to pray for them. And so from a human perspective, this is, this is kind of understandable though, isn't it? From our own fleshly perspective. I mean, what, what's the alternative, right? And you walk away. I mean, ooh. That's, that'll tell them God. That'll tell them we didn't... Right? It's like, God, come on! Something more dramatic. Fire! Something! What's, tell them who's boss. What's this shaking dust stuff? That's lame. And this is what happens when, when our confidence is in ourselves, when we're worried about our own reputations, when we're worried about our own embarrassment, rather than leaving it to God. That we want to be proven something like, I want to do something. More than dusting my feet. Right? You, you want to be proven right. You want something more. You, you, you want something to show them that they're wrong instead of just, hey, leave it to God. That's God's thing. I was doing God's work. He told me to dust my feet. That's it. But we so badly want to be right. We so badly want to prove that we are right. And so we want something more dramatic to prove it. Right? So we're not patient enough to just let the Word of God work and to let the Spirit of God work. And we want something more immediate and we want that with flair and we want it right now. Like, you don't accept it, you're, you're going to lose an ear. Or whatever, you can't smell anymore. So you, you want something to make them feel like you're wrong. And so rather than just being persistent in our prayers and being persistent in the things that God has called us to, regardless of how long it takes, this frustration within, within us, this desire to, to be right, it just burns inside of us. And it's like a kid who's playing a board game, isn't it? You're, you're playing a board game, and the first die you roll, they roll a one. So they move one space. And then you're playing against them, you roll a six, and they're like... Whole board, right? They just want they want it dramatic. They don't want it to play out because like in Candyland or something, right? You can pick it and you can get the cupcake and go to the top. Like, come on, be patient. You can still win, even if I'm way ahead. But we're like kids. We're not patient enough, and we just get there, and somebody like gets a little bit better than us, and we just say, "Fire!" Right? Instead of dust your feet. I'm going to get the cupcake anyway. Right? It's cool. It's cool. Luke chapter 9, verse 55, what did he do? He turned and rebuked them when they tried to ask for fire on Samaria. He rebuked them. It's not what I'm about, guys. Right? So it's not in Jesus' plans for us to call down fire who reject us, right? Or, but Jesus is just so patient. He's so kind. He's He's, he's gracious. And look what he does in chapter 9, verse 56. And they went on to another village. That's awesome. Right? Essentially, you guys didn't get it. Let's try again. Let's go. 
you guys wanted to burn a whole town. I want to preach the gospel. I want to preach the kingdom of God. Obviously, it's not going to work here. Let's try again. New game. Set up the thing. Put the pieces back on. Shuffle the cards. Let's, let's try this again. That's how gracious and loving and patient Jesus is. Now, the first question in our text, it appeared twice, right? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now we're going to move to this a series of questions in this passage. There's two other questions here, and we're going to move to the second one here. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. John the Baptist, the greatest preacher, not the greatest, I guess, aside from Jesus, a really successful one at that, though, right? Preaching repentance and baptizing people left and right, and he didn't go out looking for an ideal situation. Now, this is, a, this is something interesting for those of you who ever consider church planting. I do a lot of praying and a lot of counseling of new church planters in the area. I meet with a half dozen guys right now, and I know of three others coming in to Oakland, Berkeley in the next year. And the Bay Area, it's not that I'm that great. It's that there aren't that many pastors that have a tenure over 10 years in the Bay Area. And I'm approaching 10 in March. So it's just I'm, I'm old compared to them. Right? But, but the newer church planters, the thing that they are always concerned about is where? Location. It's like shopping for real estate. Location, location, location. And they're overly concerned with this thing, I think. My prayer for them is that they go wherever the Lord leads them. Right? And, and if that's in deep East Oakland or deep West Oakland, that's awesome. I pray for that, actually. But it's interesting that it's I'm not going to pick on Oakland. I'm going to pick on Berkeley because we're in Oakland. So I'm going to go to Berkeley. When people want to plant in Berkeley, they always want to be near the campus. Always. Always. Every church ministers to the Cal campus. We do, and we're like far away. But everyone wants to be. What my question is for them, why don't you go to West Berkeley? No one's in West Berkeley. Next church plants West Berkeley. From Regent? No, I'm kidding. It'll just be wherever the Lord calls you, and I'm going to push West Berkeley. But the thing is, is that John's not concerned about location. People came to him. Do you know where John was? I visited where John was. It's terrible. I mean, now it's nice. They made a resort out of it. Actually, the Marriott has a place there. But back then, it was bad. There's nothing out there. It's swamp. Even the baptismal place that they've made into like this commercial site, pay us this money so you can go. They made it all nice. But if you actually go to the place where they think John the Baptist actually did it, it's kind of swampy and muddy and pretty gross. And so Jesus goes through these rhetorical questions, right? And he's asking all these stuff, all, all this stuff. But it's interesting that John doesn't worry about the location. He just worries about doing God's work and people are coming to him. Off of that church plant stuff. See, people didn't think, you know what? 
they're, um, where John is, they have these really, really awesome reeds that blow in the wind. And we should go see that. And John's there anyway, but we can, we can see these reeds. They're really awesome reeds. And that's why we should go. Right? They didn't, they didn't think that, right? They didn't go think like, you know, there's this really sharp-dressed guy out in the desert, like out of, out of nowhere, and he looks so awesome. He looks like he should be in a king's court. So we should go there and look at the reeds. That's why we should go out there. Right? It, it, it's, it's so fascinating. They didn't think that. Right? They, Ralph Lauren wasn't then, there yet. So, so all this stuff, right? The, the, the reeds, the, the nicely dressed thing, they, they went out there to meet a man of God. That's why they went. They went out to hear about the kingdom of God. That's why they went. They didn't go for the, the other stuff. And Jesus is using these rhetorical questions like, did you go out to see a reed? Did you go out to see a guy in fancy clothes or something? And this guy, John the Baptist, he was going to follow the call of God no matter where it was and even if it was in this swampy area. And so knowing this about John makes us question this Jesus that, this question that he had about Jesus. It makes it even more surprising, doesn't it? Right? This, is, this is John the Baptist. No one could move this guy. No one could stop this guy from preaching. Not even Herod. He would call Herod out on stuff. He got thrown into jail for that stuff. John the Baptist, who, who knew his calling, but here we find him asking this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is a surprising question. But this is such an encouraging question for me. I think it is for us. Because if John the Baptist can question like this, I don't feel that bad when I question things like that about God. If John the Baptist, this great prophet of God, is going to ask a question like this, when I have questions of God, I don't have to feel bad about it. When you're angry at God, when you question God, when you're just, you're just puzzled by the Lord and you want to just debate Him on stuff and discuss with Him on stuff, it's okay. He can take it. And so, something interesting here is that even when, when we are successful in our ministries, it's when you are the most successful that you are primed for the longest fall. When you are at the pinnacle of your success in ministry, that's the longest fall to, to failing, isn't it? I mean, think about this. Look at Noah. For 100 years, what, did, what was Noah's message? It's going to rain. Preach the same. You guys are bored of my messages. You go listen to Noah for 100 years. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Can you tell us about the you know, eschatological thing? It's going to rain. And I'm building this ark. And it's going to rain. It's raining. It's going to rain. And I'm building this ark. And I'm going to collect animals. Three things. That's what he's doing. hundred years. Right? All of this comes true. All of it comes to fruition. People are pounding on the ark, wanting to get in. And the storm comes and all this stuff. And, and then what happens at the very end of it? If you jump forward, what happens? Noah's naked and drunk as a skunk. Some people interpret that as, oh, he was so sad, saw the, all this stuff, and that's why he drank himself to whatever. There's another rabbi that has written that he did it because of his successes. That Because it's not like he, he just had it. He had to grow those grapes. 
they had, he had to harvest the, this is a lot of time that has elapsed before he was drunk as a skunk right so he had to do he had to ferment them and all this stuff and if it was a really nice wine it probably a lot of years so it's um so he's doing this and what this rabbi thinks in his commentary is that Noah was pretty proud he was like I listened to God I was faithful in preaching that same message it was going to rain for a hundred years I built that huge, humongous ark. I collected all the animals, animals that can't even get along with each other because I had to put a dog and a cat and a mouse in the same place and an elephant. And they all, I had to take care of all that. And I was successful. I did all this stuff and I came out and I replanted, I repopulated the earth. And look at all this stuff. I have awesome wine. Drunk as a skunk. The pinnacle of his success. Like, I am so faithful. I am repopulating the earth. I survived the storm. I built that ark. I preached the same message for a hundred years even though I was boring people to death. Look how great I am. The greatest fall is from your success. You look at David. When did he fall to, with Bathsheba? When he was fighting in battle on the front line? When he was fighting Goliath on the battlefield? When he was a successful king, when he just didn't even go, have to go out to the battlefield anymore to direct his troop because he was that successful. Stayed home, just hanging out. Whoa. Call her over. Successful king. The top of his success, that was when his greatest downfall. And so you see John the Baptist, great preacher, great success. And he asked this question. So in our greatest accomplishments, we can become the greatest failure like that. How important it is for humility. You look at Satan. Once a great angel leading the choirs and stuff like that. Greatest success, greatest fall. And this is, this is not a great moment in John's history, right? It doesn't deny all the good that John has done. John has done amazing things for the kingdom. He's even called the greatest guy, right? Born of man. But it does show us that even the greatest Christians, we get shaken. We all get shaken. The important thing to keep in mind is that we need to get up when we get shaken. Like, get up. And so will we be like Noah and David and John, or will we be like Satan in that fall, you just stay fallen? See, John got up. John was a great prophet, and he was prophesied in, in Malachi. He got up, just like David and Noah. Verses 27, 28. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare prayer your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Does verse 28 confuse anybody else? How is the one who is the least in the kingdom greater than John, who is the greatest among those born of women? Doesn't that seem kind of like, what? Let me try to explain. John was in, line, in, in the line of Old Testament prophets. Even though he's in the New Testament, he's still in the line of Old Testament prophets because he was the one preparing the way for Jesus. He didn't come after Jesus. And so he didn't appear after Jesus, right? He's before and during. What was revealed to him as a prophet was the same stuff that was revealed to other Old Testament prophets. 
right? And so in that, the, the benefits of redemption were not experienced by John. Right? He, he wasn't there to experience life after death, after the death of Jesus on the cross. Does that make sense? So, so those who have experienced this life after the cross, after Jesus died on the cross, those who stand to benefit from the redemption of the cross are greater than John. They got to experience that. They got to experience that redemption. And it's not greater in terms of importance, but in their grasp of the unfolding drama of redemption. They got the full picture. John, wasn't, John was killed before he could see that. Before he could see that Jesus hung on the cross, he resurrected from the dead, showed himself at Pentecost. He, was, he died. He didn't get to see the full redemptive picture. So that's why. Okay? So John didn't know this full story of a crucified Savior because he was killed before Jesus was killed. So John wasn't there to see the stuff. Wasn't there to see the resurrection. Wasn't there to see Pentecost. So in this sense, that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist, the, great, the, the greatest of men. You turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. John the Baptist is in this group of prophets. Okay, prophets who prophesied about the grace of God that we were to experience through Jesus Christ's redemption on the cross. And all these Old Testament prophets, they desired to see that. They wanted to see that, to see, to experience this fulfillment of God's grace in the Messiah. And here we have John who is the prophet closest to experiencing this fulfillment, but he's killed before it actually happens. So, so John saw Jesus, he knew Jesus personally, but still he anticipated something that he would never get to experience, that we get to experience. So the least in the kingdom, us, is greater. We, we see the full story. We experience the fulfillment of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, raising from the dead. And he never tasted that. He never tasted that the Lord is so good, that the story unfolded the way it did, and, and he... he you could taste it, just as Peter wrote in First Peter two, verse three. You know that the Lord is so good. That's the difference between John the Baptist and the least in the kingdom. Verses twenty nine and thirty. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What Luke is doing here is he's, he's illustrating how religious people come to God believing that they are worthy, that they're deserving of something, that they can somehow earn something from God. So you recall that right from last week's uh, lesson. The centurion, remember that first group, that first delegation, he sends these Jewish elders over and they start telling Jesus, Jesus, this guy's worthy. He's deserving of you. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue, all this stuff. And then later on, the centurion sends the second delegation. The second delegation is saying, hey, he is not worthy. We can't even have you come into our house. Like, we're just not worthy of you. Just say it and it'll happen. So that's how it was in Jesus' day. 
You know, the, the religious, the Pharisees who, who rejected what Jesus had to offer them, and the sinners such as tax collectors and prostitutes, they accepted what Jesus had to offer them. So you have these two polarized groups, just like in the story. And so the Pharisees and the lawyers, they, they, they rejected the purpose of God, as in verse 29 says. So they refused to repent. Right? They, they refused to be baptized, to have this outward showing of their repentance, while the tax collectors showed these fruits of repentance, and they did get baptized, like in verse 30. And so the Pharisees, the, the religious, these re- reject, they rejected God's plan of salvation, while these sinners, they came to repentance, they accepted God's plan of salvation. And what the Pharisees failed to grasp was that salvation is a gift. It's a gift. It's not a right. And we are not entitled to salvation. Salvation is a generous gift, a gracious gift from God. Now, the funny thing is that centuries later, things haven't changed very much. We have religious people who think that God owes them something. And we have sinners who recognize that they don't deserve anything from God. And so there are some people like agnostics who who profess that human knowledge is is limited to experience, who deny that there is an ultimate knowledge, but they feel that they can earn their way into heaven, that they can do something, that they are good enough people, that heaven, they will be there. But you can't. You can't. There's nothing you can do to earn righteousness. It's all through God's grace. All of it. God's grace is a gift to us. And redemption is not something that you can work towards. It's only through Jesus. You can't do something for yourself. It has nothing to do with what we have done. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. And this is really hard for people who are proud. This is hard for them to accept. People don't want to rely on anyone or anything especially Jesus, and they want to rely on themselves. They want to say, I did it myself, I got my bootstraps on, and I I worked my way in there. I did it. And they don't want to be thought of as a sinner. I can overcome. I can do better. They want to believe that everyone is good-natured, and that we have a good inside of us, and we can do the... Have you been baptized if you're in this boat? Have you been baptized? If you have not been baptized yet, my, my question is, why not? Why haven't you? Is it because you've rejected the purpose of God for yourself like the Pharisees and the lawyers did in verse 30? Too proud. You have all this knowledge in your head, but too proud. You don't want to make that outward showing that you're dying to your old self and coming back a new person. That you are fully giving up your own stuff and you're letting God work through you. And if you believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and if you, if you haven't gotten baptized, why not? Why? Might I suggest that you're self-righteous and complacent? Right? What's preventing you from this public showing of allegiance to Jesus to say goodbye to your old self and hello to the new person in Jesus? Why is that so hard? See, sinners who are redeemed by Jesus will admit that Jesus is right. right, And they will repent. They will be baptized. It's just one of those signs. It will happen. right? The self-righteous, the prideful person will not. And so they're just filled with self-righteousness, with pride. I'm not going to go in that water. 
I'm not going to show that sign. It's just between Jesus and I. I don't have to do that sign. You're right. You don't have to to show like a sign of salvation or anything. Like you can't. The, the thief on the cross did not get pulled down and baptized. And you don't have to be baptized to be saved. But it does test your heart to see where you are in your heart. Like if you're not, why not? You're not hanging on a cross, so why not? And so here we get to the third question in our text, which shows us the wickedness of people, verses 31 through 34. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what they are like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What is Jesus saying that people are like? Who is he comparing them to? Children. Children who are huffy and fickle, and they like messing with people's minds. Children in the marketplace, right, who wanted to play the flute and celebrate like they were in a wedding, but then they didn't dance. So instead, they sang a dirge, and and they mourned like in a funeral, but they didn't weep. And so this is what's happening with, with the story here with Jesus and John. There's a group of people who are condemning John for not eating bread or drinking wine because he's an ascetic, so he's not... He's not playing the flute and dancing to a, a wedding and stuff. And because of this, they call him a demon. And then there's this other group, conde- or the same group actually, or maybe different, condemning Jesus because he eats and he drinks. And because it's party time with Jesus, right, in the house here, and he's not an ascetic. And because of this, they call Jesus a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways, right? Jesus and John were both doing the will of God. Both. Jesus and John, they don't party and they don't mourn on demand. You do what you do for God, as He instructed you. And it's just like that for our church. Right? I've heard both sides of every single issue in the same service. Right? People visit the church, or maybe people that have been here a while, they say something like this. You know, I, I really wish that the church would be more kind of upbeat and happy. Why, why do you um, preach about sin so much and you talk about hell? And Why don't you talk about more positive things? And on the same Sunday service, you know what else I hear? Why don't you preach more about hell? Why, why don't you bring in the fire and the brimstone? People near, need to hear about judgment. Same service. Right, and I've heard it from, from my preaching to, to worship. Let's have like more upbeat worship, like more. And I've also heard like, can we just like tone it down and just do hymns? And, and then I've heard it with ministry. Like, you know, this church is too socially justice fo- focused. Like we need to do more gospel and preaching and stuff like that. Don't do that much stuff. And I've also heard the other side. We, we don't do enough. We don't do enough social justice stuff. We need to get out there. I don't know what to tell you. Right? It's the same thing with everything. Fellowship time? 
Communion? You're like, how does that work with communion? That's grape juice? I've heard, why don't we have wine? When we had wine, why is the wine there? So it doesn't matter. Right? I've heard it from every angle, every announcements. You know in announcements it'd be cool if like you you guys could be more energetic and funny and stuff like that. And then I've also heard you guys are just not serious enough. It's too funny. I think we need to be more serious. Children. Children. Right? We as a church are not here to dance to your flute or to your dirge. We don't dance to your tune. We dance to the tune of God. And it's not to say that we don't want to hear your feedback. All, all I'm saying is, don't be like children. If you're saying one thing, realize that someone is saying the very opposite of what you want. There is. Someone is saying the exact opposite of what you're requesting. I can't dance to both. When I feel like hip-hop, it's hip-hop. When it's ballet, it's ballet. I can't do both. I guess I can. It would be funny. Right? So regeneration doesn't dance to your tune. We have to be receptive to what the Lord wants us to do. And then we dance like that. We dance like that. Jesus was telling them that John doesn't answer to you. Nor do I. Right? Right now it's party time. I'm with you. And you want me to do a dirge? It's not time for mourning. John, he, that's what he's like. That's what God's called him to. He likes eating locusts and wild honey and wearing camel hair and stuff like that. That's him. That's what he's called to. He can't party with a guy like that. Right? So he, and so he calls them children. It's like asking a kid right, what, what they want for snack. Hey, what do you want for snack? And, and so like, oh, and so, okay, how about some pretzels? Oh, too salty. Okay, um, a fruit roll-up. Oh, too sweet. Child. Right? Just recognize you have food to eat. So when you come into the church, like, oh, it's this, to this, it's to that. Be happy that you got a place to worship. So being a, a pastor of the church, it can be really frustrating at times. Extremely frustrating. I deal with a lot of children. A lot of them. I'm not saying you, but I deal with a lot. Preach longer. Preach shorter. Preach funnier. Preach more serious. Preach something more uplifting. Preach something hellfire. That's just the preaching part. I got all this other stuff going on too. With worship. With outreach with social justice stuff, with communion, with everything, with prayer, everything, home groups, anything you can think of, it comes to me. And I have to think of this. And what I think is, I'm going to get a box of binkies. And when I hear this stuff, I'm just going to stuff your mouth with a binky. Are you kidding me? I can't dance to your tunes. It doesn't work for me. I can't. I got one, I'm an audience of one. I have an audience of one. That's it. I want your feedback though. I do. I want your feedback. I want to grow. I want to learn. But I want you to understand someone is on the very opposite side asking for the opposite thing you're asking for. 
That's what I want you to understand. Verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is proven by all her children, meaning that when when people grasp unto the wisdom of God, which is revealed through John and Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's club music by Jesus or if it's emo by John. It doesn't matter. Wisdom is confirmed by children. right? That, That we're looking for God, no one else. We're looking to God, no one else. So may we stop playing these games at church. Right? Let's let's stop playing that game. Just realize what you want. Somebody wants the exact opposite of what you want. I actually have to praise our church because I think we've made vast improvements from the past. I had to deal with this so much more several years ago than I do now, quite honestly. Right now it's actually not bad. It's I just need a small box of binkies. Back then I needed like a Costco-sized box of binkies. And I'm, I'm really pleased with the progress. And, but for those of us that still play games, I, did Jesus die for us to play games? Did Jesus die to make me a binky distributor? Like, right? I mean, is Regen here to make you feel happy or sad? Regen cannot make you feel anything. Region cannot make you do anything. That's you. Take ownership for yourself. If you're feeling bad, ask yourself why. We're not making you feel that way. I don't make you feel happy. I don't make you feel sad. You decide. You have ownership of that. Right? Is, is that why Jesus died for you anyway? Is to make you happy or sad or whatever. That's not why he died. He... He died for your sins. He died to save you. And, and He's given you a church, but He hasn't given you a church that dances to your tunes. Right? You want more of that? Great. You can take some ownership to see how you want to shape that. You don't have to come to me and say, oh, change it this way to make it more. You can, you can take some ownership on how you want to shape that. You want something to be more of whatever? Go for it. Go for it. Jesus died to save us. That's why he died. He didn't die so that he, we produce a church that just like, oh, we're, let's dance, a, dance to a dirge. Let's dance to a flute. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. We see that even John the Baptist in asking his questions, um, that we wouldn't have to feel ashamed or embarrassed at the questions that we asked. Being that he was even your blood cousin and a a great prophet. And we ask God that, that we would be able to see ourselves that if we're, if we're playing games and we're demanding of all these things, Lord, that, um, we would just be aware that there are other opinions out there and that we are solely serving you, that we desire to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.